0: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me Kat Arney, and also with Ginny Smith. This week, we're exploring the move away from a one-size-fits-all approach to medicine towards healthcare that's tailored to a person's unique genetic makeup. We've been to the Sanger Institute to see how genes are sequenced and how we can use this information for treatment as well as for better diagnosis. Plus, we'll be hearing about the origins of the moon,
1: how plants are surprisingly chatty, and also how chemistry has unravelled some mysteries about Egyptian mummies.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by
3: UKFast.co.uk
0: You may have noticed that over the past few weeks the Moon has been extra big and bright in the sky. But how was it first formed? Well new research published this week has shown that our current understanding could be wrong. With us now is Alex Halliday, the head of the Mathematical, Physical and Life Sciences Division at Oxford University. So most of us will have heard of the Big Bang Theory, but not as many people know about the Giant Impact Theory. Can you tell us what that is?
4: The Giant Impact Theory basically proposes that the Earth was hit when the Earth was about 90% formed. Planets like the Earth grow over a period of time, millions of years, by accreting other planets, by gravity. So they get bigger and bigger. And when the Earth was about 90% of its current size, it was hit with another planet about 10% of the size of the Earth, which is about the same as planet Mars. And this Mars-sized planet hit the Earth with a glancing blow, which gave the Earth and the debris all around the Earth from the impact the spin. It also would have heated the planet up, and finally it would have actually formed a disk around the Earth and that disk of debris and gas would have condensed and coalesced to form the Moon that we have today. So the giant impact theory came about in the 1980s as the least worst explanation for the origin of the Moon. One thing is the Moon is larger relative to the size of its host planet than any other Moon in the Solar System. The other thing is the Moon moves around the Earth as the Earth spins, what we actually see in terms of the movement appears to be coming from the moon itself. And that's something that's a bit hard to explain. The moon is gradually moving away from the Earth over time. But there is also one other striking thing that was not clear until the Apollo astronauts went to the moon and brought back samples. And that is that the moon appears to have a slightly lower density to the Earth, suggesting it's not quite the same stuff as the Earth.
0: So effectively, a smaller planet knocked the moon off the earth it knocked a chunk of the earth off and that became the moon is that the idea
4: so that's where the problem lies this impact would have been so energetic think about the collision of a 10 kilometer sized object wiping out the dinosaurs but this was something actually another planet colliding with the earth so it wouldn't have just knocked a bit of the earth off it would have actually vaporize parts of the Earth and cause massive damage. If you model this with supercomputing, which we can now do, you can track the particles that make up the Earth and the particles that make up the other planet as they collide. And what you show in these simulations is that most of the stuff that ends up forming the Moon comes from this other planet that we sometimes call Theia. When we look at those samples that the Apollo astronauts brought back, we find that this doesn't fit at all. If you look at the atoms in those samples, they have a diagnostic fingerprint that suggests they came out of the Earth, not out of this other planet.
0: So the, the theory doesn't quite match up with what we actually see when we test it. So do we need a new theory?
4: Over the last uh, decade, there have been a lot of new computer simulations lots of new measurements of the composition of samples brought back from the Moon, uh, providing new constraints. And so one of the key things was that people had started questioning whether this spin of the Moon around the Earth and the spin of the Earth itself, um, the the orbit of the Moon around the Earth, rather, whether this was actually a result of the giant impact or whether the Earth was already spinning before the giant impact took place.
0: What do we need to do in order to find out how the Moon was formed? What research would you love to see happen?
4: Well, the main problem we've got at the moment is that this issue about where the atoms come from. If you look at what we call isotopic fingerprints... ...of the atoms in the Moon, they look just like the Earth... ...and so it looks like a bit of the Earth has formed the Moon. If you do the simulations, it suggests that the Moon should come out of this other planet... ...which should have a different composition from the Earth. So there's one possible thing that either those simulations are wrong... ...or alternatively, there's a possibility that maybe this planet Theia... ...actually came from inboard of the Earth rather than outboard of the Earth... Um, it's possible that the compositions of the atoms in that region actually may look more like the Earth in that region. And if we could get samples of Venus or Mercury, we could test that theory.
0: Thank you. That's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. That was Professor Alex Halliday from Oxford University. Now, beloved of school children
1: everywhere, ancient Egyptian mummies have captivated and intrigued us for thousands of years. But new research analysing the chemical composition of linens in a burial site has shown that the ancient Egyptians were mummifying their dead 1,500 years earlier than we previously believed, meaning the history books probably need updating. And that's not all that chemistry can tell us about this ancient culture. Georgia Mills spoke to Stephen Buckley from the University of York to find out what his research has unravelled.
3: Before this study we thought that Egyptian mummification started around 2600 BC uh, but this study actually um, pushes back the origins of Egyptian mummification to around 4300 BC so back by about 1500 years. The big thing we found out is that they were actually using complex recipes and bombing agents on prehistoric mummies a great deal earlier than we originally thought.
5: How did you find this out?
3: We found this out using chemistry, essentially. The study actually involved looking at funerary textiles that had been treated with embalming agents, getting a chemical fingerprint of what these materials were. And rather than it just being resin, which is one substance, we actually found it was a mixture of ingredients and quite complex, and they'd also heated these materials together So they'd gone to quite some effort before they applied them to their dead. So you actually see that the embalming agents in the prehistoric burials are remarkably similar to the embalming agents that were used 3,000 years later when Egyptian mummification was at its very best.
5: Why were they making this, this embalming fluid? What did they want to achieve with it?
3: I think in these very early burials, where these ingredients may have started is that they had some symbolic significance, connected with the properties of the animals and plants they came from. And then they noticed that because the recipes contained antibacterial components, the pine resin and an aromatic plant extract are strongly antibacterial, they probably noticed that where they were in direct contact with the body, you actually had preservation of the soft tissue, which, of course, is what a mummy is. And then from that made the connection, if the body survives, perhaps the individual can survive cheek death, if you like. And so mummification became an integral part of their belief system. So they believed later that the body had to be preserved in order for the spirit to get into, into the afterlife. And if there was no body, they were dead forever. So mummification was extremely important. What's interesting is it suggests that recognition started actually in the prehistoric period as early as the late Stone Age.
5: They were mummifying their dead a lot longer ago than we thought. What else does this tell us about Egyptian culture?
3: I think it tells us that the Egyptians had a a degree of relative sophistication quite early on, so their lives were relatively complex, even 4000 plus BC. This is a nice part of the research because it has been true within Egyptology for quite some time, the view that at this time the Egyptians were barely capable of getting out the front door. Um, and that they were very localised and exploiting local resources, perhaps making it to the Red Sea, but not going too far. Whereas this research shows clearly that they were going up to the northeastern Mediterranean and doing this over a period of, of centuries. And so their world was quite big.
5: How do you know that their world was so big?
3: We know the world was big simply because one or two of the ingredients, the pine resin for example, is a temperate pine, and the nearest source for that is what is now southeastern Turkey. So it has to come from at least that far. Why they were able to get around, certainly part of it, was the use of waterways using uh, rivers that ran in the um, valleys across the eastern desert. In the late Neolithic period, the environment was warmer and wetter, so the rainfall meant that you had seasonal rivers, and that made it much easier to um, get around. The environment did change, so in the late Neolithic it was warmer and wetter, but then there was this fairly dramatic change in climate around 3,800, 3,700 BC, where it went to cool dry. Seasonal rivers dry to a significant extent, so it actually became more difficult to get around. You actually see a move away from marine resources in the actual embalming agents to more um, terrestrial-based materials.
1: And as
0: they say, the rest is history. Dr Stephen
1: Buckley from the University of York.
0: Now they may not seem particularly chatty, but plants are constantly communicating with each other and with their surroundings using chemical signals. And now researchers from Virginia Tech have found that parasitic plants have their own special way of communicating with their hosts. Their paper, published in the journal Science, showed that molecules very similar to DNA, called RNA, can actually move between the two plants, possibly allowing them to send and receive messages. I spoke to Jim Westwood about his research and started by asking him what we mean when we talk about a parasitic plant.
6: So basically there's one plant that is attacking another plant and physically attaching to it in order to withdraw water and nutrients from this, what we call the host plant. And it gives nothing back. It's just taking its resources, everything it needs to live from that host. And
0: what is it you found out that's new?
6: The host and the parasite are exchanging messenger RNAs. And what is unique about this, I guess, is that they're exchanging a lot of them. And then it's going both ways that there's some of the parasite RNA is also going back into the host.
0: What is a messenger RNA?
6: I imagine this as like a factory where the executive office, the DNA, writes a a memo that is the messenger RNA, sends it to the production floor, and where it's turned into a product and it directs the when something is produced and what exactly is produced.
0: So is it quite unusual to find these being sent actually out of the plant that produces them and into something else?
6: Well, we know that plants use these within their system. So they will be sent around from one cell to another cell in the plant to transmit information, say from a leaf down to a root or something like that. And so it it can be used as a method of internal communication. But the idea that they are being taken or, or escaping to another organism is quite new.
0: So how do they get from one plant to the other?
6: The parasite has a structure called a hostorium, and that invades the host tissue and forms connections to the vascular system, the tubes where there's water and sugars. And basically what you get is is a cell-to-cell connection where one cell of, of the parasite is right up next to Uh, cell of the host, and they are exchanging information through the walls, basically.
0: And do you think this is just accidental leakage as the parasite is trying to get access to nutrients? Or do you think the plants have actually evolved to use this for some process?
6: Well, that is a great question. We don't know that they are actually used as information, but, but RNA is an information molecule. It seems very possible, that it is using it.
0: And what kind of things could they be using them for?
6: Going back to the the factory model, if the parasite is intercepting these internal memos from the host plant and reading them, it could get information on the status of the host and know whether the host cells are are under stress or are going to keep producing more food. Even more interesting is the idea that the parasite is sending these messages into the host. And in that case, you could imagine that the parasite is actually telling the host through these memos, basically to, well, make more food or, you know, stand down security and treat me like a friend.
0: So if there is this kind of backwards and forwards signaling, is there any way we could sort of hijack this system to get rid of these parasitic plants where they're affecting our crops, for example?
6: If you could engineer a host plant that is making a specific, we call it a silencing RNA molecule that can move into the parasite and shut down some potentially critical process in the parasite, this could be a very elegant way to get at control of parasitic plants.
0: And how big a problem are parasitic plants for agriculture?
6: Well, it depends where you're talking. In the developing world, parasitic plants are a huge problem. In places of sub-Saharan Africa, there is a parasite called witchweed, which is devastating to cereal crops on, on some of the world's poorest land and affecting the world's poorest farmers.
0: This idea of information being passed from one organism to another, we know that in bacteria they can actually do this horizontal gene transfer and actually take parts of each other's DNA and and start using them. Do you think anything like that could be going on here?
6: It is possible. The horizontal gene transfer... It occurs very rarely between plants, but it seems that it is more likely where there is a physical association, as in with parasitic plants. We don't really have evidence right now that DNA is moving, but there is at least one example that's been reported by another group where it looks like a horizontal gene transfer event could be traced back to RNA intermediate, where the RNA would have been converted to DNA in the parasite and inserted into the genome.
0: Could you just talk me through how that mechanism would work?
6: There is um a process called reverse transcription where you take an RNA molecule and it it's translated back into a DNA. And then if that would be inserted into the genome and incorporated, then it could persist and especially, you know, if it would have a, a useful function, then it could be selected for and retained.
0: Virginia Tech's
1: Professor Jim Westwood... When you think about things that increase the risk of cancer, you'd probably list things like smoking, UV rays from the sun or air pollution. But in fact, like the inflation of the nation's waistlines, there's a growing number of cancers that are linked to obesity and being overweight. A new study published in The Lancet this week from scientists at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has looked at more than 5 million people in the UK and concluded that around 12,000 cancers every year can be put down to excess weight. I spoke to lead researcher Krishnan Baskaran to find out out more.
7: So this was a, a very large study. We were able to include data from over 5 million people and the way that we did that was to access um, anonymized GP records from across the country. What we did was we put together the height and weight measurements that have just been made in regular GP consultations um, as part of routine care and we also looked forward in those anonymized records to see uh, later on uh, whether there were any uh, diagnoses of cancer in the same people
1: What sort of timescale are we talking from from those measurements being made to then a, a diagnosis of cancer, I mean, 5 years 10 years, 20 years?
7: Well it varied but the the data source that we had access to, the, the earliest kind of records from that were in the late 80s, early 90s so for some people we had about 20 years so on average, we had, I think, six or seven years of follow-up for, most, for the average person in the study.
1: So it sounds like you're taking the, this information about height and weight and you can convert that to, to BMI and then go, well, did they get cancer? How do you actually go about proving whether there is a link? And is it for all types of cancer, some types of cancer?
7: Yeah, well, so far, it's, that was the simple version. And, of course, we have to take into account other things that might be common causes of having a high BMI and later on getting cancer so this is where we do our statistical modeling and um, try to use other other information we have from the record uh, to, to discount the effects of other common causes like um, for example socioeconomic uh, status smoking habits drinking uh, these things can could all affect both cancer risk and BMI so they could lead to a spurious association so we try to collate all the information on those factors and include them in our modelling so that we really had what we thought was the, the real effect of body mass index.
1: So, so what do you find from the data?
7: We confirmed that, as we thought, there were, there were important relationships between body mass index and cancer risk. And what was quite striking, because this was a broad study, and I think the first time in a single data set where we've looked across so many cancers, we looked at 22 of the commonest cancers, um, and it was quite striking, the variation in effects, actually. So for the majority of cancers, there was uh, an association. And for 10 cancers, there was a, a very clear positive correlation. So the higher um, people's body mass index was, the greater their cancer risk seemed to be. And for others, there was for a few cancers, there was very little effect. For some, there was even uh, apparently lower rates of cancer among those with the higher body mass index but that was the, mon- the minority and you know those are the slightly more surprising results but again they are consistent with uh, what has been shown before.
1: Which cancers are we talking about here that are most strongly linked to obesity?
7: In terms of what are the impacts on the population one has to also think about uh, which how common these cancers are so uh, it's a slightly different answer if you're saying uh, which of these cancers are worst affected at a population level. The specific cancer type that really had the most striking positive relationship with body mass index was cancer of the uterus in women. That's womb cancer, which is actually the fourth most common common cancer in women. And for cancer of the uterus, we found that increasing the body mass index by five units, which is for an average height woman would be uh, adding about two stones of weight, um, actually uh, increased the risk of uterus cancer by over 60%, so really quite a large effect. Breast cancer has a, a smaller relative effect uh, or association with body mass index but I think the actual number of, of cases of breast cancer that we've estimated that would be attributable to excess weight is larger than for, for womb cancer because it's the function of these two things, how large the effect is and how common the cancer is.
1: How many cases of cancer are we talking about?
7: That's something we tried to estimate in this study. Um, so by using both the, the national cancer statistics and also um, the effects that we estimated for body mass index. Uh, we estimated for the 10 cancers that were really clearly positively associated uh, with body mass index, over 12,000 could be attributable to having excess weight. Um, Is
1: that every year in the UK? And
7: that's every year, yeah. So that's, that's uh, if you like... If we could somehow magically remove all excess weight from the population, we would expect from these results to prevent about 12,000 cancer cases. So it's really quite a large population impact.
1: So with this study, you kind of feel that this is the strong evidence that we can go out there and say, you know, we, we really know this now.
7: Yes, I think so. I think that this really sort of seals it. So we already knew there were these important effects, but now we've really put some more, some more meat on it and uh, worked out uh, exactly what the impacts are. And it really just adds ever more to the case uh, for some ambitious policies to deal with obesity in the population, which we know are affecting cardiovascular risk, we know they're affecting uh, diabetes risk, and now we really know the extent to which they're affecting cancer risk as well.
1: So adding to the weight of evidence.
7: <laughs> exactly
1: apologies for the bad joke there that's uh, Dr Krishnan Baskaran from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and me Kat Ardy.
0: and now it's time to move
1: on to our main topic personalised medicine do you
0: always buy the same clothes as your best friend or your grandmother the answer's probably not but despite your differences when you your friend or your grandmother get sick you're likely to be diagnosed and treated the same way Our limited knowledge of how different people respond to sickness as well as to different treatments means we have to make do with a one-size-fits-all approach to medicine. But now that's starting to change. Just this month, David Cameron said that he's backing a research project to sequence 100,000 genomes of NHS patients in England by 2018. Some experts believe this will become a national testbed for sequencing the genomes of the entire UK population. This means that within a couple of generations, healthcare could be tailored to a person's unique genetic makeup. Grae Jackson met with Dr. Mike Quayle at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, where the £200 million project will be hosted, to find out how we sequence genes.
8: Sanger was set up around 18 years ago to do pilot work for the Human Genome Project. And since then we've diversified and we have a number of faculty groups essentially who are looking at the function of the genome and what it does. One of the ways we do that is by DNA sequencing. We sequence the genomes from people who have diseases and people that don't have diseases and try and find those bits of the genome that do confer disease. One of the first steps in the process of genome sequencing is getting DNA. And so we're about to do a very simple experiment to get DNA out of a human being.
9: Let's get started. So what do you want me to do first?
8: First of all, because this is a lab, we can't put anything in the mouth, so we're going to go outside the lab and we're going to swill a uh, salt solution around the mouth. You're going to do that, because I don't (laughs) like a taste of salty solution. This is a sterile tube. It's clear, you can spit into that.
9: Great, I'll take that. So, salty solution, in it goes. Ooh, Ooh that's horrible. <laughs> so now that contains bits of my DNA.
8: This contains a suspension of cells from your mouth, both human cells from the inside of your cheek, but also lots of bacterial cells so you can get quite contaminated results from mouth swills. So, we have our mouth swillings. We're going to add some Commoner Garden washing-up liquid. Roughly three parts of washing-up liquid to one part of mouth swill. And we give it a good mix.
9: So what you've got now is a very frothy sample.
8: And the detergents in the washing-up liquid should release the DNA. And now, in order to see the DNA, we're going to precipitate it ...using some ethanol.
9: What is it that the ethanol does?
8: This will mean that the DNA will come out of solution... ...and it will form a, a white milkiness, a white strands within the tube... ...and that is our DNA.
9: It's my DNA. It's
8: your DNA. Congratulations.
9: And now that we've got the DNA, what's the next step?
8: So the first thing we do is we break that DNA down into small bits... ...and we sequence it as those small bits... And then put together that jigsaw on the computer after the sequencing.
9: Can we go and look at the sequencing instruments?
8: Everyone wants to do that. So we'll, we'll go in knock, knock. And here we are. Here we have an array of sequencing machines. And these can sequence human DNA samples in a small number of days for around 1,000 US dollars per genome.
9: These machines actually look a bit like very sophisticated fridges with lights streaming across them. They look very futuristic, very Star Trek, if I may say.
8: Yeah, a bit like Night Rider as well. Yeah.
9: How much is processed here?
8: So we sequence around 10,000 samples per month. That's a mixture of bacterial samples as well as human and other genomes such as mouse and zebrafish. The DNA itself is double-stranded, and by that, it's a bit bit like a ladder. So a ladder will have two uprights and some rungs. And in DNA, those uprights we call strands are the backbone, and the rungs are a number of special bases that are either A, C, G, or T. And it's the sequence of those bases that gives the DNA its function and is able to code for whether you've got blue eyes or brown eyes or whether you've got a certain disease or not.
9: What range of information could they glean from this DNA sequence?
8: There are lots of promise around using DNA sequence for personalised medicine, for diagnosis of disease, for early risk prediction through to um, pharmacogenetics, where, for example, you might be able to work out whether they've got Proteins which are susceptible to certain drugs or not, and if we could predict which people those drugs will work in, you know, we'll have a, a much bigger bank of pharmaceutical agents to work from.
9: Do you think it's going to become the norm in the future? And if so, when?
8: Very slowly, the human reference genome is being put to use. We can use the presence of the sequence to devise tests to test for the presence of certain diseases, certain genes which cause disease, and these can serve as good predictors that can inform clinical decisions. And more and more in medicine, DNA sequencing is likely to be used over the coming years, particularly with after large-scale projects like the 100,000 Genomes Project. Potentially, at some stage, everyone could have their genome sequenced.
0: Dr Mike Quayle speaking with Greer Jackson at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge. Well, sequencing your DNA may be one way to
1: provide a better diagnostic tool, but there are other methods, and one is by monitoring molecules in your blood. And we're joined by Simon Goldman in the studio, and he's here to tell us about a project he's been working on called ROCA, I believe.
2: The risk of ovarian cancer Risk algorithm. of ovarian cancer. Yeah, ROCA.
1: Uh, that enables early and reliable detection of ovarian cancer using a computer algorithm. Welcome, Simon. Hi. So tell me a bit about the background to this. Where where does this start
2: from? It starts from a group at University College London who were looking at the main marker in the blood for ovarian cancer that's been used for decades called CA125. And this biomarker, which indicates the presence of uh, of ovarian cancer, um, has been used for a long time uh, and isn't actually particularly very good at doing the job. Um, So this
1: is a molecule produced by the cancer cells and just kind of floats out into the blood and around the body?
2: Correct. The problem with it is it's actually produced in a lot of other conditions, not just in cancer. So it's produced... produced in, say, endometriosis or in pregnancy as well.
1: Okay, you don't want to confuse ovarian cancer with pregnancy. You certainly don't.
2: (laughs) So what happened was in the late 1990s, a group at uh, at UCL had a look at this uh, particular protein and asked the question, what happens if rather than just looking at its level, we look at it at the protein's level over time? because it may be that different people have different baseline levels uh, and maybe that it's the change in level uh, from uh, their baseline that's more important than the absolute level in and of itself.
1: So who are you looking at to, to measure these levels of change over time?
2: Um, so the uh, the trial that was started uh, in the early 2000s um, had uh, about 200,000 volunteers uh, donated blood um, to participate in this trial to show that uh, you, you could look at this over time. And it's very important. Important because on the basis of the test as as it stands, just looking at the level, um, only around about one in twenty-seven surgeries that for for ovarian cancer that was based on this test and on and on a subsequent ultrasound actually found a cancer. It's traumatic for the people who get told that they've got ovarian cancer, but also it's a big burden on the health system. So this trial started in the early two thousands, and two hundred thousand women gave blood. And about 50,000 of those gave blood every year for 10 years and followed through that whole period um, in order to basically ask the question, what happens if we look at the level of this this, uh, protein over time? Do changes in the level of that protein actually tell us something about ovarian cancer?
1: So rather than saying, okay, you've got a level of one, you've got a level of four, it's about the rate of change over time. So someone with an accelerated change in it, they might be more at risk than someone who kind of Bumbles up and down in their level.
2: Correct, and similarly, somebody else who might have a baseline level that is, say, four. Let's assume that that's above our cutoff. Might actually be someone who doesn't have ovarian cancer. The level of the of the protein may just be going sideways over that whole period. Really, what the Algorithm that's come out of this whole trial is looking for is, as you say, those inflection points and trying to pick people up. And some of the people might have had baselines that were very, very low and they had a sudden increase, but they never reached the cutoff. So these people weren't even picked up.
1: And this is quite important when you think about cancer tests because it suggests that you can't, particularly for a blood test, you can't just go right, you know, you get your test when you're 50 and that's it, that you have to monitor people over maybe their entire lifetime. Do you think that would be an idea?
2: Correct, and I think we're already starting to do that with things like cholesterol testing, but then even something like cholesterol has never been looked at over a long period of time to see do changes in the level of cholesterol then predict cardiovascular disease. For example, more than half of the people who have a heart attack had perfectly normal cholesterol, so you wonder, does that really tell you something, or should you be looking at it over time rather than just at the level?
1: And I guess when you start looking in the general population, look at everyone, you'll find people who have cholesterol levels like, crikey, that's quite high, but actually they'll never have heart attack.
2: Correct and those people may have particular genetic predispositions for example to not have a heart attack and so the level of the cholesterol doesn't really give you very much information.
1: So in terms of the algorithm you're using where are we at the moment with maybe being able to apply this certainly in ovarian cancer?
2: The algorithm itself is being commercialised probably will be available from about next year at the moment, the trial is still ongoing. Um, they've stopped collecting the blood, but they're still uh, kind of sad sitting there waiting for the last few cases of ovarian cancer to come through, um, but probably sometime, sometime next year. But the principle can be similarly applied to any other disease. You've got a biobank sitting there with 200,000 women who got all of the diseases that you would ex- have expected, 200,000 women to get over that kind of period of time. So, for example, you can look at uh, proteins uh, that are related to, say, pancreatic cancer, uh, and you can see that these proteins are changing, you know, two to three to four years out from when it's currently being diagnosed and especially in a disease where you know from diagnosis median survival is about four months it's a terrible terrible outcome yeah. if we can pick up these changes much earlier maybe we can intervene.
1: Uh, pancreatic cancer is really critical because it's it's diagnosed so late and survival is so poor and one of the other cancers we hear about is prostate cancer there's a blood test called the PSA test that measures this protein called PSA in the blood and that again has problems with its reliability you know guys might have a high level not have cancer guys might have cancer and not have a high level um is, is this, again, something similar? Obviously, the, the study that you've done has women rather than men in it.
2: But. True. Well, I, we haven't yet found a, a, a prostate cancer uh, case in our cohort. That's um, lucky. Be quite uh, <laughs> interesting if we do. But, um, no, the, the principle is the same. And, I mean, the, the, the key thing here is an algorithm that not only compares an individual to their own baseline, but once you've got a large cohort like that, compares your profile to everybody else. And in the case of PSA, I'm not sure that that's been done.
1: Yeah, and I guess that the, all this kind of work does highlight the fact that we are all unique. You can't just have a one-size-fits-all. And even if we could pe- put people into maybe buckets and say you're higher risk, you're lower risk, you need more monitoring, you need less monitoring, that's got to be able to save lives in the future.
2: And that's basically what the process is. You get a blood test uh, over time, you're screened effectively over time, uh, if the level of say CA125 rises, then a doctor's going to say, well look, your your level's different from baseline, the algorithm suggests that you're at risk, maybe you should go and have an ultrasound and the, the intervention is accelerated and you can pick up cancer a lot earlier than you would otherwise pick it up.
1: So it certainly sounds like this is uh, something you're very excited about. Indeed. I reckon so. And uh, in terms of the, you say you've got 200 samples just sitting in a freezer there, you know, are are there plans to, to look at other types of cancer? You mentioned pancreatic there.
8: Absolutely.
2: I mean, there's, in, in total, there's about five and a half million samples sitting in a fridge there. And the thing is, you can look at a lot of other diseases, cardiovascular disease, not all biomarkers are going to profile well. But in a lot of cases, no one's ever actually done the study because no one's had these kinds of cohorts over that kind of period of time to be able to do those studies.
1: So basically, it's there in your fridge, and Indeed. hopefully the answers are there. Thank you very much. That's uh, Simon Goldman from Abcodia.
0: Now, diagnosing diseases isn't always easy, especially when it comes to very rare ones. Helen Piper is the mother of four-year-old Alex, who has an undiagnosed developmental disorder. She told us how difficult it's been living without a diagnosis. We first noticed something
10: wasn't quite quite early on, probably about eight to ten weeks. He wasn't focusing on people, he didn't make eye contact, he wasn't smiling. Um, and he was very floppy on his neck. Our first doctor was, was in no help at all. She literally took one look at him and went, ''Oh, well, he's probably got Asperger's, but that's OK, here's a leaflet.'' And off I went out the door and I cried so much. <laughs> Because you just think, well, this is not very supportive and I'm not at all sure that's right. So I took him back again and saw a different GP who, again, almost took one look and went, mm, no, that's neurological. And so off we ran on a series of various trips to, and we started off with the paediatrician and we've seen, you know, neurologists. We've had genetics involved all to try and work out what's going on and, and nobody has been able to give us an answer. It was extremely isolating because there are no pathways that are, I suppose, obvious for you when you don't have a diagnosis. If you... Have a label for your child. There are at least obvious pathways down to travel in terms of support groups, in terms of input from social services. Uh, We were quite lucky in that um, on one of our visits to Great Ormond Street, I cried over them and said, there must be a support group somewhere. And they said, oh, you know, have you heard of SWAN? SWAN stands for syndromes without a name, and it's a amazing charity that supports all the parents of children who have no diagnosis. We call our children SWANs because it's quite a nice, graceful name for these beautiful children of ours.
0: Now, trying to diagnose rare conditions like Alex's is hard. There may only be a handful of cases across the world, meaning that even the most experienced of doctors are unlikely to have seen them before. To help tackle this issue, the University of Oxford's Christopher Nellicker has harnessed the power of facial recognition technology. He's developed a diagnostic tool to help people like Alex with very rare syndromes stand a better chance at an accurate diagnosis. Hi there, Christopher. Hello. So are these kind of undiagnosed conditions common?
11: So a rare disease is, as uh, the name implies, rare. Uh, But there are a lot of different types of rare diseases. So collectively, they're surprisingly common, perhaps. Uh, One in 17 people might have a rare disease.
0: That's way more than I would have expected. How are you using facial recognition software to help diagnose these things?
11: During the development of the face and head, a very large portion of our genes in our genome uh, used in the development of the head and face. So if there is a DNA change in one of these genes involved in this, it's very likely that it causes a change in the final form of the head or face. So this is what clinicians have been using uh, for the past 65 years to try and identify and help diagnose these rare diseases is to look if there are commonalities in characteristics between patients and thereby trying to group them into uh, potential diagnosis.
0: You've trained a computer to do the doctor's job for them, so to speak.
11: This research was only possible because we had a great collaboration with Professor Andrew Zissman at the Department of Engineering Science, who's a a, world-leading computer vision. And so together we set out to try and see if we could use the latest computer vision and facial recognition type approaches to try and aid uh, the job of clinicians in analysing faces and trying to cluster uh, people by commonalities in the head and face.
0: And how good is the computer at picking up these differences?
11: So we used eight rather well-known syndromes to train the computer to try and analyse these rare diseases. But then we applied this to a further 82 syndromes and the computer could then generalise and try and uh, and cluster patients even for these other syndromes that we didn't explicitly use in training.
0: And how do you see this being used? Would it be the case of having a computer in every doctor's surgery that could do this?
11: This doesn't require any fancy equipment. The algorithm uses any old photograph. Uh, There's a 2D photograph in like a family album. In theory, if you could show that to a computer, then this algorithm could be used to analyse them. And taking a photograph of patients with suspected rare diseases is standard clinical practice anyway. So this would be seen as a expert tool for clinicians to try and help narrow down to potential diagnosis and sort of suggest which tests might be suitable to be done.
0: So you mentioned there that it's a narrowing down procedure. It doesn't mean that you could just tell exactly from a photograph What was wrong with the person? You'd still need to do other tests.
11: This has to be used in the hands of an expert. It's not sufficiently accurate to give 100%, though it does do much better than expected. So for these untrained syndromes, it narrows the search space for the right syndrome by 27 times better than random chance. And this, again, was just a sort of proof of principle study to see if it was possible to do this. So we're hoping to expand on this.
0: So I guess that would save the taxpayer quite a lot of money if you could run fewer tests rather than having to run all 27. Uh,
11: yes, uh, I mean, this is also, um, uh, since this algorithm is just uh, used as basic equipment, it could also be uh, applicable in parts of the world where this type of expert uh, expertise is not easily accessible. So it, it would help narrow down the, the the tests that might be done in, in, in countries and, and in healthcare systems where uh, money is very much limited to the number of tests you can do.
0: And what kind of tests are we talking about that would need to be done to get a sort of definite diagnosis?
11: So ultimately you want to uh, identify a genetic cause if there is a genetic cause for the, uh, for this particular or a particular rare disease. That's not always the case. But if there is a DNA change, then that's what you want to try and identify. And so there are existing a lot of uh, specific tests to look for specific changes. Uh, as, as this uh, new genome sequencing, as we heard earlier in the program, is developing, of course we're hoping to make this... Uh, that this will make it a lot easier to identify um, the DNA changes in rare diseases.
0: And just briefly to finish up, how long do you think it'll be before something like this is in widespread use?
11: So we are trying to develop this as uh, quickly as we can, of course, uh, but we do have to expand this uh, work out with clinician collaborations carefully but uh, a number of years still, but we would be hoping to do it as a sort of ongoing research and development as it rolls out uh, in collaboration with clinicians.
0: That was Dr Christopher Nellica from the University of Oxford. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and with me, Ginny Smith. Well, sequencing your genes may mean better
1: diagnosis and even treatment, but what happens to your genome once it's been sequenced? Where does all the data go and how is it stored? And most importantly, Is it safe? Back at the Sanger Institute, Grae Jackson spoke to Dr Guy Coates, one of the people charged with protecting the thousands of genes that they sequence at the facility.
9: So we're in the middle of the data storage room here. We're surrounded by aircon and all sorts of flashing lights and brightly coloured
12: cables. What's the function of this room? The science that we do is all about big data. What we want to do is sequence many, many different genomes from many different people and then analyse them In order to do that, we need a lot of storage.
9: How much data are we talking about here?
12: We store about 20 petabytes of data. So if you think about your hard disk in your laptop, which is about a terabyte, petabyte is a thousand terabytes. So we're roughly holding about 20,000 times the amount of data that you'd have on your machine at home.
9: And what does that translate into?
12: Typical genome is probably of the order of three gigabytes. So it's many tens of thousands of genomes.
9: And how do you keep this secure?
12: The Sanger Institute actually has a very open data policy, so most of the sequencing data that is generated here is made available on the internet for other researchers to be able to download.
9: So does that mean anyone can have access and pinpoint someone's sequence or genome?
12: In principle, if the data has been consented for release, then yes, anyone can come along to our website and download as much of the data as they can handle. We do have some data sets which involve confidential patient information. For researchers who want to get access to that data have to come and submit proposals to an ethics review board who will decide.
9: Has there ever been any incidences where data has accidentally been leaked or hacked?
12: Not from us. There have been incidences where people have taken what looks like anonymised data, then been able to combine that with third party data sets. One of the classic examples has been a study where someone has been able to, in the US, has been able to take genetic information, which wasn't even a full genome scan, and then link that back in some circumstances to surnames. Now that's not complete re identification, but it shows how careful that we have to be with genetic data.
9: So, if your genes can be traced back to your family, what? Could the outside world learn about you? You can tell a whole range of things. Dr Anna Middleton, Senior Scientist at the Sanger Institute and Gene Ethics Expert.
13: So you can tell somebody's past, present, future from their genes varying from the age that they would have be been predisposed to develop their first tooth through to whether they're predisposed to high cholesterol through to whether they're at a higher chance than average of getting cancer. So a whole collection of different things.
9: It sounds like a never-ending list of possibilities.
13: Yeah, <laughs> actually virtually everything about us has some pathway in us that you know links to our genes. So together with the environment, genes make us who, who we are
9: you can potentially glean quite a lot of information about someone. So how is that kept anonymous?
13: As far as identifying an individual goes, that would actually be very difficult. If you managed to get somebody's sequence and you had their raw A, C's, T's and G's, the bits that make up the sequence, you couldn't look at that and go, oh, I've just identified that person from that. You, You can't do that. You need a way of interpreting it. If that individual had other things online that um, identified them, such as their photographs, such as links to a particular condition. You could, in theory, match them all together, but it would be quite a complex exercise. So what we do is to try and keep the data we have on campus as safe as possible. We use the same sort of systems that banks do to protect identifiable data, and we're just as cautious as we can be.
9: Your genome may just about be safe from prying eyes for now, but... What happens if you consent for someone to look at a specific gene and they accidentally see another, one that's life-threatening but curable? In a research setting,
13: if incidental findings are discovered, there isn't a duty to be sharing those. Now, that's actually quite different from a clinical setting... So if you had an X-ray of your lung and then picked up an unexpected rib fracture, then you would expect the doctor to explore that and share that. The same in genomics is expected. If you genuinely saw something accidental that you weren't expecting, then there would be an expectation to share that, particularly if it was very serious and potentially life-threatening and also actionable. So if we pick up genes relating to even serious conditions, if you can do nothing about it, then really what's the point in knowing?
9: So if it's incurable, that's not something that would be communicated to a patient. So, for example, if
13: you were looking at, say, a two-year-old with a severe developmental disorder, say, you would be looking to try and find the genetics behind that developmental disorder. So how helpful is it to then be looking at the Alzheimer genes that wouldn't even be relevant until that child was an adult?
9: If you're looking at sequencing the gene, is it a case of just a gene being, this means you have Alzheimer's?
13: so the vast majority of genes that we have give some level of prediction about the future but it's very difficult to be precise so when you're discovering things incidental findings say in a research setting or even in a clinical setting it's very hard to actually interpret them without clinical data attached to them.
9: Is there a standard policy across the world that people can look to that can follow um, should they find themselves in these circumstances? generically
13: if we were to look across the world what are people doing i'd say in the uk and in europe more generally we're being more conservative about incidental findings and we're saying okay the information that you can get from a whole sequence is vast you know what to look at and share is it just information relating to serious actionable conditions what about information relating to pregnancy or carrier testing what about response to medications all these different genes play a part in these different things And at the moment, we're saying it's actually very hard to manage all of that. What we'll do is really just focus on answering the clinical question. So if somebody comes in with breast cancer, we'll really only just look at the breast cancer genes and to find out what chemotherapies are going to be most helpful for them and look at trying to support them with their cancer. Let's not think about all these other pieces of information, perhaps until another date. And that's very different from what's going on in the States at the moment. There they're recommending every time a sequence is done to automatically look for 24 cancer and cardiac conditions at the same time every time a sequence is done. So they're using that opportunity to do a screen of other things at the same time and that gives a very strong public health message. So it's just a different kind of approach. So we're more conservative here. It may well be we go to the American position at some point but we just don't quite feel ready yet.
9: When are we likely to be able to see this sort of wide-scale access to your genomic
13: sequence? The 100,000 Genomes Project has started. So this is this massive government initiative to sequence 100,000 people in the NHS. So it won't be available for everybody, but the government's really made a massive commitment to create the infrastructure to support sequencing on a large scale. The Sanger
1: Institute's informatics leader Guy Coates and gene ethics expert Dr Anna Middleton.
0: And finally, closing this week's show, Georgia Mills has the question of the week. This week, we've been
5: getting a little choked up about this question from listener Samira. Do emotional or
1: pain-induced tears differ? Is it possible to test tears and deduce if they are related to physical pain or
5: emotion? If so, what is the difference between the two? Can we test the difference between tears of sadness or tears caused by irritants in your eye? To start with, why do people get so watery-eyed? With the answer is Professor Vingerhoots, a motion and tear expert from Tilburg University.
14: Crying predominantly expresses powerlessness or the strong desire to be reunited with a lost valued person, object or location. The advantage of crying aloud is that it's emitted in all directions. It's then very likely to be heard by parents who can provide care. But this means it may also be heard by predators. Most mammal offspring will make distress calls if separated from their carers. However, humans are the only species who shed emotional tears. The advantage of crying tears, a visible signal, is that it cannot be detected in the same way by predators but may easily be seen by the parents or caregivers.
5: So tears are a way of sending a visual signal of distress to your parents or carers. Can you tell why someone was crying just by looking at their tears?
14: Physical pain tears and emotional tears are both produced by the same glands above the eyes. Like other glands, such as salivary glands or sweat glands, they are connected to our bloodstream. Some ingredients of the tears originate from the blood, and the composition of blood can be affected by hormones, which in turn are affected by exposure to stressors and your emotional state. This could lead us to think that tears produced in different emotional states could differ in their composition. However, a great deal of mystery still surrounds this idea. Over 30 years ago, American researchers compared the biochemical composition of emotional and irritant onion tears and found that the emotional tears contained more proteins. However, that has never been replicated and we don't know what this would mean.
5: So hormones in your bloodstream can enter your tears through the tear glands, changing the chemical makeup. But the jury is still out on just why this occurs. However, research from the Wiseman Institute of Science has shown that female tears contain chemicals that can cause a reduction in male libido, but only when the tears were emotional and not from getting something in your eye. Next time, we're hoping to shine some light on this question from Benji.
8: Can we use solar panels in space? If so, how could the energy produced be sent back to Earth?
5: Could extraterrestrial solar panels be the next bright idea? And how would they be able to power our homes down here on Earth? What do you
0: think? Georgia Mills. And if you've got some ideas, you can find us on Facebook or get in touch with us via Twitter. A huge thanks to all our guests who've been in the studio. That's Alex
1: Halliday, Simon Goldman and Christopher Nellicker. My thanks to Greer Jackson, Georgia Mills and Hannah Tooley for production. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. Join us next week when we've got all our best bits from Naked Science 2014. Thank you for listening.